Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, will be our reading. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, Last time we looked at verses 1 through 3 in connection with our discussion um, of the millennial age. uh, We teach clearly that the scripture teaches us that Christ reigns now. His kingdom was inaugurated at his first coming. It will be finally consummated at his second in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, We teach that the last day and the day of the Lord are the same day. The bodily taking up of God's people from the earth occurs at the second coming as the bodies of those who are already with the Lord will be raised from the grave along with the judgment of the living of the dead. It's all on the same day. It's the same day. Uh, Dispensational premillennialism, and the reason I mention it so much is because it's so popular. It's ingrained in so many people. Um, It teaches that evil will increase in the world until the day when Christians are secretly taken up, that is, secretly raptured to heaven to escape a seven-year tribulation. Following the tribulation... They teach that Jesus will return to set up a kingdom based in Jerusalem for 1,000 literal years. But dispensational teaching um, is grounded in a significant distinction uh, between Israel and the church. That is that God has two people with two separate destinies. Israel's is earthly, and they teach that the church's is heavenly a view that's unsupported by Scripture, uh, making suspect their their eschatological view. In addition to that, the premillennial tribulation rapture rests largely on a very confused reading of Daniel 9. And it's incredibly hard to square with Scripture because it creates three comings of Christ, um, not two. Now, we made the point last time that the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, occur after the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating that the Bible does not teach premillennialism. We're confident in that. We proclaim that. Uh, We also teach that chapter 19 and 20 are not chronological. 
Have we seen that thus far, beloved? They're not chronological. We've seen the end described a number of times. That is the same events from numerous angles, providing a, a recapping or a retelling of the same story from different vantage points, um, otherwise known as uh, recapitulation. And it's not unlike uh, instant replay. For those of you who will be watching football later today, you will see instant replay run. Let's say a fella fumbles the football. And the question is, was he down? Because in the NFL, if you get knocked down, pushed down, tackled, and then fumble the ball, it's not a fumble. For the ground cannot force a fumble. So if it's unclear, you're going to see uh, instant replay run from many different angles. And from one angle, you see, oh, the guy's knee is down. He's down. It's not a fumble. From the other angle, you see a completely different view of the same thing, and it reveals that the ball's out. The ball was already out when his knee was down. And what we've seen is the last battle, the second coming, the final judgment, the final state have been, have been shown to us um, several times. From different angles. So the revelation serves as a a recycling of major themes. These are things that we have to have down, foundational truths, because if we get these wrong, we get that wrong, you get revelation wrong. I think we've been clear, have we not? Now, Revelation 19 ended with the destruction of the nations. Revelation 20 begins with the binding of Satan so that he can no longer deceive who? The nations. Now, if this were chronological, then these nations that have been destroyed, utterly destroyed, just magically reappear. We saw last time that Revelation 20 goes backward to retell the very same story from yet another angle. Just as we saw the wrath of God on the nations and a t- the time for the dead to be judged back in chapter 11, when we get to chapter 12, John goes backward to provide the big picture perspective of the cosmic war, depicting for us the birth, the life, the death, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the victorious Son of God. And at that point, Satan's cast down. The vision here that follows the finality of judgment shown to us in chapter 19 is a vision in chapter 20 that also moves in reverse. To that throwing down of the dragon, here in chapter 20, pictured simply from another angle, declaring that he's bound now for a thousand years. A thousand years is not literal. It's an apocalyptic symbol for an ideal period of time. It's a long, extended period of time. And that is the period between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 1, the phrase there, then I saw, again, is the order in which John sees the visions. And John sees an angel here coming down from heaven, confining Satan to the pit so that he can no longer... Deceive the nations. It's not that Satan has no power, but rather his freedom is limited. He's on a chain. He's cast into the pit, verse 1, verse 3, later to be cast into 
his eternal prison, which is mentioned later in verses 10, 14, and 15. And that final place of punishment assigned to Satan is the lake of fire. So in view of that, his final place of punishment, the pit in verse 1 and verse 3, logically then refers to his intermediate condition. Now. So this is a figurative description of Satan's curtailment, and that is a chain that restricts his ability. So this shows to us that Satan's destruction is given to us in two phases. It's given to him in two phases, revealed to us as coming in two phases. There's the preliminary phase, described here in verses 1 through 3, and that is the result of Christ's victory on the cross. As a result of his victory on the cross, he's confined. He's, he's bound from deceiving the nations. And then that preliminary phase is, is followed by the eternal phase described in verses 7 through 10, and that is the result of Christ's second coming, the lake of fire. So that is the already inaugurated phase of Satan's judgment to be followed by a consummated phase, the lake of fire. So the binding here today is the preliminary phase of Satan's ultimate destruction. Now again, out of everything that Satan is and everything that Satan does, only one thing is mentioned with regard to this 1,000 years. One thing, and that is his binding from deceiving the nations. So Satan's power in this period between the two advents is drastically reduced. And again, as I said last time, the word nations in verse 3 is more specifically defined as Gentiles. Satan's power over the nations, over the world, is not what it was during the period of the Old Testament. It's reduced. For then he held the nations in blindness, in unbelief, until he was bound upon Christ's victory. Colossians 2.15 declares that he, our Lord Jesus Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. And again, it does not say, the text does not say, that Satan is bound so that evil is expelled from the world. It does not say that sin has come to its end, nor does it say that Satan is completely powerless. And and, and again, as I said, sinful men and nations do not need Satan in order to sin or perpetuate evil. Now, ever since the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we are seeing the fulfillment of God the Father's words to his son in Psalm 2 that says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Whose possession? The risen and ascended incarnate Son of God. Incarnate Son of God. Raised, ascended, ruling, reigning as the ascended incarnate Son of God. So Satan's binding ensures and enables the evangelism of those nations. From that day 
to this day, and until he is released for a short time to once again deceive the nations, which we'll look at next time. So John has described for us the reign of Christ in heaven for a thousand years, along with numerous saints who reign with him for those thousand years. Now, premillennialism teaches that this is a time yet future when Christ will sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem. That is a literal earthly throne for a literal thousand years in the literal city of Jerusalem. Okay, but question. Is that what we see being described here? This is really simple. Let's read it. Then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls, the souls of those, hint. I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads on, or on their hands. Question. Do we read anything about a rebuilt Jewish temple in that text? Anything about Jesus sitting on earthly Mount Zion? Anything suggesting a reinstated Levitical priesthood? No. What about a reinstituted sacrificial system? No. This single solitary text describing the millennial reign doesn't mention anything of the sort. Talk about classic eisegesis. Talk about pressing something into the text. That's what eisegesis means, press something into the text. So now, understanding the principles of apocalyptic literature, it's a perfect perfect sensible reading of the text that John intends to say something like this. At the same time that Satan is bound, the saints are reigning. At the same time Satan is bound, the saints are reigning. Meaning the saints are reigning now. In the period of time between Christ's two advents. How can this be? Where are they reigning? Where are these thrones? The answer is an obvious one, friends. It's not on earth. The thrones here are not on earth. They reign in heaven. So the reference to to thrones in Revelation, anytime we read in the book of Revelation, to thrones, those refer to seats of power that exist in heaven, with the exception of two. The beast throne, which is on earth, and the cathedral seat of Satan described back in chapter 2, verse 13, when Jesus talks to the church of Pergamum whose city, by the way, possessed the oldest temple in Asia Minor, devoted to emperor worship. Jesus said this, I know where you dwell, Pergamum Church, where Satan's throne is. Every other reference with regard to thrones is heaven. In verse 4, John tells us that he saw, notice, the souls of those who had been beheaded. 
This is not an, a physical, earthly rain that sees, but a heavenly, spiritual one. These are disembodied souls of God's people. So here John sees recognizable, disembodied souls of those who had been beheaded. Believers who held to the gospel all the way to the end of their lives. The faithful. Those who persevered to the end. Proving that their faith was real. Now, the immediate context of the next part of of, uh, our text here in chapter 20 is the martyrdom of God's people. John is writing to those original recipients, let's not forget that, of the first century who were under heavy persecution. They lived in the midst of rank paganism. That's who he's addressing, first and foremost. So he's writing, providing for them present tense comfort. Present tense comfort in their day in the midst of an incredibly tense conflict. So in the first century, there was, of course, the true fear of not being able to advance economically. You'd easily lose your job unless you played along with with the pagan, idolatrous practices of the Roman Empire. You'd be shut out. You'd be ostracized. You'd be cut off. And possibly have your head cut off. Standing on the allegiance to the gospel was the threat of lost income, imprisonment, and death by those whose allegiance was upon the beast. Their allegiance was to the beast, the false prophet, and the Babylonian whore. And homage was to be paid to the God of the age. And if you didn't align yourself, you'd be cut off in one way or another. So this is yet another answer to the question that underlies the book of Revelation. What do we tell our brethren who have lost loved ones for their allegiance to Jesus Christ? That's what this is all about. That's what the Revelation, a good portion of the Revelation is all about. To drive home this truth. This was the pressing pastoral concern. And it's been answered time and again throughout the Revelation. So here, John answers that concern in this last series of visions given to him. And that is, they are reigning with Christ now. What answer will you give to those who lost loved ones? What answer will you give to the parents whose children are being beheaded in Iraq today? You know, they're going, from what I understand, they're going from house to house telling people to denounce Christ or lose your head. They're not killing the parents. They're cutting off the heads of the children in front of the parents who refuse to denounce Christ today. What do you tell those parents? Their children are reigning now with Christ in heaven on thrones. So the the encouragement and the reminder that we would want to give one another is to the promises and the power and the presence and the protection of Almighty God. Eternally secured, sealed to the end. So there's no better answer for encouragement to those remaining saints 
than the one given here in this text. You know, press this forward to one, two, or three thousand years in the future. On earth in Jerusalem. Come on, really? So that's what the Holy Spirit's doing here through the revelation given to John. Providing this kind of encouragement. Those who've already given their lives for allegiance to Christ, they're ruling with Christ. The souls of those that John sees ruling with Christ. Those thrones are located in heaven, not on earth. So as we simply read the text, where are these people? They're in heaven, amen? Really simple, they're in heaven. If we simply read the text, who are these people? Those described as having authority to judge. It actually reads as follows. Literally reads as, and judgment was given then. Okay, that is to say, judgment was given on behalf of them. On behalf of them, whose allegiance was to Christ. Now, this is a scene, friends, that takes us back to Daniel 7. Do you remember that the Son ascends before the Ancient of Days? The Son of God stands and and receives dominion from the Father. And later on in verse 18, we read, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 21, As I looked, his horn makes war with the saints and prevailed over them until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, John sees those here who have been martyred. Now, Jesus talked earlier in the seven letters about believers who have been or will be martyred. Okay? And he said this back in chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Is that simple? Very simple. Now, for the persecuted church, they're encouraged to know that Satan cannot break, he cannot bind the advancement of the gospel because he's bound from deceiving the nations. Okay? Yet, if he, Satan, who knows his time is short, he knows his time is short, and he has gone off to make war with the offspring of the woman, remember that? Revelation 12, verse 12 and 17. Should he have believers killed in the process, he becomes, Satan that is, becomes their agent of success. The very instrument that secures their victory over him. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can kill both body and soul. In other words, if they're put to death or they die for whatever reason, they're immediately ushered into a greater expression of their promised reign with Christ. It's just, we already reign with Christ. 
were just ushered in upon death to a greater expression of the reign, and that's what we see here. It's not the ultimate experience. It's not the ultimate expression because that is having glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. That's the ultimate expression. So the expression comes in stages. We're one with Christ. We have a union with him. We're kings, we're priests. We reign with Christ. This is his kingdom. We, we proclaim his truth. We proclaim his gospel. The moment you die, whether you lose your head or you die of cancer, or you get hit by a truck, you're ushered into his presence, into a greater expression of that reign, awaiting the ultimate expression. Resurrection of these bodies to rule and reign forever in a new heaven and a new earth. So the expression of that reign in heaven is better than that which is being expressed now. Amen? So the greater experience of believers during the millennium is the heavenly intermediate state. It's the intermediate state between life here and a new heaven and a new earth. It's the intermediate place of the saints. So this reign is taking place from where Christ rules, and he rules over all, but he rules from heaven. He rules from heaven, so they're in heaven, ruling with him now. So who participates in this millennial reign? That's the next question. Is it only those who've been beheaded? I mean, after all, in the first century, Christians were crucified. I mean, is that the prerequisite? You have to lose your head, literally? You know, no crucifixion? What about those torched? What about those drowned? Well, they're all included. John's using language and imagery most common to their eyes. And that was beheading. We're seeing an increase of that, aren't we? Okay, but does it include only those who are martyred? Only those who were crucified, beheaded, burned, torched, drowned, whatever. No. Notice, it's all of those who've not taken the mark of the beast, which is not a computer chip or a barcode. It's a symbolic mark of allegiance to the beast. So whether you die of the sword or whether you die of old age... Whatever, however, you're included here because of your union with Christ. One commentator puts it like this. Qualification to reign with Christ in heaven is not the circumstances of our death, but our fidelity to him unto death. And this is not work salvation, by the way. This, that's his work wrought in us that is proven to be his work wrought in us to the end. Amen. They share in his resurrection. Notice the scripture says they are blessed and holy, and as a result, the second death has no power over them. They are priests of God on earth and in heaven, more greatly expressed. Intimately close to God, never to be driven away. Now, premillennialists argue that these are saints given resurrected bodies sitting on thrones during an earthly millennial reign in Jerusalem. Okay, but again, again, if nations have been destroyed, how do they exist 
in a future millennium. Christ destroyed them in Revelation 19. How is there anybody to revolt in chapter 20? It's just another picture of the same thing. That's all. This is not chronological. No, and also, if there are nations under Christ who rules with a rod of iron, and if this is chronological, if those nations are going to rebel after that literal thousand-year reign, that means that during those years, Jesus ethnically separates those people during the millennium. He ethnically separates people if it's chronological, because the nations are going to rage against him, right? Again, it's just another picture of the same last battle. Now, those nations, if they were to exist in the future, will have physical bodies. Okay, and they teach that they'll be procreate, procreating in order to repopulate the earth, which will eventually lead to a second fall. A second fall. And for men to be deceived, all the while living alongside those who have glorified bodies. So you have glorified bodies with non-glorified bodies, physical reproduction, glorified saints, ruling and reigning, and then all hell's going to break loose again and there's a second fall. This is obviously not a description of a future earthly millennium characterized by a time of universal peace. This is a time characterized by Satan being bound from deceiving the nations. That's why the gospel is going out. It's been going out. It has been going out. And it's still going out to the four corners of the earth. Figurative language for the whole world. All the nations. So where is a result of allegiance to and the evangelism of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is persecution and there is suffering during that same millennial reign. So in the face of the persecution of the beast, not only do these people come to life, but the second death, the second death, which is a reference to eternal judgment, to the fires of eternal hell, have no power over them. None. They come to life and they reign with Christ until his return at the end of the age. So, we see today in these first six verses that there is more to the millennial reign of Christ than Satan being bound from deceiving the nations. It's one part of it. The vision in verses 1 through 3, here we go, beloved. The, verses, the vision uh, in verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6 are visions that share the same period of time. Two distinct visions that characterize the millennial reign of Christ. The first, described in verses 1 through 3, relate to the church on earth. The church on earth. Verses 4 through 6 refer to the church in heaven. God's people in heaven. Verses 4 through 6, God's people on earth. Verses 1 through 3. 
So the question isn't so much, you know, who they are or how they die, but what these people are. And they are the ones whose lives are marked by regeneration. They're marked by regeneration. And that's the meaning of the latter half of verse 4. So what they are is regenerate. And as a result of being born again of the Spirit, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years because they've already been brought to spiritual life. And because they've been brought to spiritual life, when they die, they're, they're physically dead, they come to life and reign with Christ. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So you can imagine the smile on the faces of those anxious relatives who've lost loved ones for their allegiance to Christ, to hear this good news in the first century, they're with him now. It's not what they will become in some future earthly millennial reign. I'm sorry if I sound frustrated. Say that. Verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? They've died as they have lived. In Christ. And they share here in the fruits of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection from the dead. Because he lives, John 14, 19, because he lives, we also shall live. Now notice in verse 5b. Okay, John refers to, to this translation from the earth at the time of death translated into his presence to this reign in heaven and it refers to it as the first resurrection. Indeed, blessed and holy are those who take part in it. Verse 6. So he's not referring to the bodily resurrection of saints at the end of the age, but instead here to the believer's regeneration, conversion, and entrance into heaven as a result of that regeneration. Jesus said this in John 5, verse 24. Listen to this. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life already. Crossed over. I tell you the truth. A time is coming And has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's spiritual resurrection. He's raised us from spiritual deadness and into a preliminary expression of reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Having already crossed over from death to life. Listen to Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, you may not fully feel that or fully see that living here. In the present, amen? Amen. But this is the fact of the matter. This is the truth. 
And this will all come to fruition when we meet physical death. That's the fact, Jack, right here. So the first resurrection occurs at the time of regeneration. That's when we're born again, more fully expressed when we leave this body. The reality of the first resurrection is more fully expressed when we enter into his presence in heaven. The fact of the matter is, it's accomplished. We've already crossed from death to life. And we'll reign with Christ as priests until those thousand years are over, whether you're here or whether with him. Just a greater expression when you're with him. And again, to be ultimately expressed in the new heaven, the new earth. Now, the very next verse, verse 5, refers to a physical resurrection of unbelievers at the end of the age. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, notice, in the midst of this glorious description of those who are in Christ and those who are with Christ, it is here in a single verse given to us to refer to unbelievers. Okay, now, this is referred to as a parenthetical interlude to express the contrast between verse 4 and verse 5b. So as he's going along, verse 5b serves as the conclusion to verse 4, smacked right into the middle of it, has to do with the rest of the dead, who will not come to life until the thousand years were ended. A parenthetical interlude slapped in the middle. So, the first resurrection is spiritual resurrection. Whereas the second death, verse 6, is spiritual death. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Or verse 5, rather. Spiritual death. So that is to say, to quote Sam Storms, he puts it like this. The believer dies physically, but experiences spiritual resurrection. Okay, a greater expression of this spiritual resurrection. The unbeliever is resurrected physically, but experiences spiritual death. So what happens to one unbelievers when they die? They're cast into outer darkness. They're awaiting, like Satan, their final place of judgment, and that is the lake of fire. But their resurrection occurs when Christ comes back, which is a physical resurrection, only to be given bodies fit for the second death. Where, chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whosever name is not in the book of life will suffer the second death. For the Christian to die is resurrection. For the non-Christian to be resurrected 
is to die. And it, it, it doesn't mean annihilation. It means physical, mental torment for eternity. So two different kinds of death naturally result in two different kinds of resurrection. The resurrection here for believers is spiritual, whereas the resurrection of unbelievers is physical. And that's when Christ comes back. The first death, physical, translates believers by way of the first resurrection into heaven. Are you following me here? I hope. Hopefully I'm not confusing. Whereas the second physical resurrection translates unbelievers into the second death. That is the lake of fire, verse 14. And that is why John says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection implies another resurrection to come. That's when we receive, for the full and final stage of salvation, glorified bodies purchased by Christ. But we won't receive them until then. But the intermediate state is that when we die, having new life, we will immediately be ushered into his presence. And that's the picture here. However you die. Those who die without the first resurrection, without spiritual resurrection, those who die having not been born again, are cast into judgment, but not final ultimate judgment. Just like we go to glory, but it's not final ultimate glory, they go to judgment, but it's not final ultimate judgment. Because that day comes when Christ comes back again. And bodies are raised from the grave. And those who are in hell, those who've died outside of Christ, will have bodies resurrected, fit for the lake of fire. And it's then that we receive glorified bodies fit for a new heaven, new earth. That's what John sees here. That's what he's being shown here. And how encouraging would this be? for those who lose loved ones for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's showing them. That's what he's showing us. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Emphasizing what he explained in the first four verses. So the rest of the dead, unbelievers although they're in outer darkness, don't come to resurrected life until the second coming of Christ. So hopefully, it's been made clear. Hopefully, I didn't boggle that all up for you. That's the end of our study. Verses 1 through 6. This is not an earthly future millennial reign. This is now. 
This is now. Amen?